We're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 6. We're just going to cover a little bit of that chapter today. But first, let's go to prayer and ask that the Lord would speak to each one of us. Lord, you know us. Your word declares that you made us. You formed us in our mother's womb. You knew about us from before the foundations of the world. And what's awesome, Lord, is that you are infinitely, intimately, wonderfully concerned with every aspect of our being. Every detail of our lives, you're mindful of it. Lord, that blows our minds. Who are we that you should be mindful of us at all? And yet you are. And Lord, you see everything. And you love us. That's incredible. Lord, you see our failures. You see our facades. You see our deceit and our lies and our conniving and our scheming. And you see our good things. You see what's right and where we're headed in the right direction. And what we want to do today, Lord, is submit ourselves to you, the God that cares. Jesus Christ, you're the king that died on the cross for us and rose to conquer sin and death and the devil. We want to be members of your kingdom today, under your sovereignty, under your authority and your kingship, under your love, Lord. And so speak to us. Lord, make us unafraid in our hearts to be rebuked by you, for you rebuke us in love and according to wisdom. Make us excited in our hearts to be encouraged by you. Come, come, Lord, and speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Joshua, you know, uh, we had Easter and before that it was Palm Sunday and before that we did a message defending the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's been a few weeks, a month this week since we've been in Joshua. So I just want to recap for a moment what has happened thus far. You remember the context for the book of Joshua is that this generation that's going to enter into the promised land the land of Canaan, has been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness outside of the promises of God. The reason for that is because the previous generation refused to enter into the land because of a lack of faith. Even though the Lord brought them to the entrance and the Lord was willing to bring them in, that previous generation, the Exodus generation, lacked the faith and the obedience to enter in. And so God is now uh, judging them. God is now disciplining them as they wander in the wilderness. And that previous generation is going to die out. And what we have on our hands in the book of Joshua is a brand new generation. They've wandered in the wilderness. They've seen the sins of the Father and the consequences thereof. They're excited about the Lord and his promises and the promised land. And so they're looking forward to going in. And they also have a brand new leader. Moses has passed away and the Lord has raised up Joshua. And Joshua is the one who's going to lead them into the promised land. And when God raised this leader up in Joshua chapter 1, he told him two very specific things. He said, Joshua, I will be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to be with you through the whole gig. Don't worry. I will be with you. And then he also said this to Joshua. Joshua, be very careful to obey the written word of God. Everything that I commanded Moses, everything that is the word of God, be very careful to obey it. Joshua, don't compromise on it. You're going to be tempted to compromise at times. But I'm encouraging you as your God to be careful to obey the word. Don't turn to the right or the left. Obey, and then, God makes a promise, then you will have success and you will prosper in the land. And so God gives them that wonderful promise that he will be with them, and also, if they will obey his word, they will have success and prosperity in the promised land. And so they find themselves camping at the Jordan River on the east side of it. On the west side is the promised land, the land of Canaan. That's where they're wanting to go. But at the outside of the book of Joshua, they're camping on the east side, and the Lord lets them camp there for three days. For three days, what they get to do is observe the enormity of the Jordan River at that time as it was swollen over its banks because of the time of the harvest. And in three days, they came to the realization, we can't do this without the Lord. We don't have boats, we don't have bridges, we don't have tools. We're not getting across this river unless the Lord does something. And then the Lord did something. The Lord parted the Jordan River and he caused the waters to stand in a heap 20 miles north. And all of Israel, well over a million of them, crossed through the Jordan River and into the promised land, the land of Canaan. At that moment, there was a fulfillment of 500 years of prophetic history and anticipation. They were walking in the miracle. They were walking in the promises. And they were entering into the fullness and the place of blessing by the provision and 
in the leading of God. The first thing that they then did was set up some memorial stones. They took 12 stones from the middle of the river and they set up 12 stones at this place called Gilgal, just on the other side of the Jordan, as a memorial. That when times were difficult, they could look at that memorial and say, yeah, times are hard right now, but the Lord is faithful. He brought us thus far. He'll always be with us. When times were ambiguous, they could say, well, there's a lot of uncertainty right now and I have a lot of unclarity, but I remember this memorial and how it speaks of God's faithfulness and his goodness and his miraculous power. So I'm going to trust the Lord and I'm going to stay the course. The next thing that they did was all of those Israel men were circumcised there in the promised land. The reason being was circumcision was the outward sign of the inward reality of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And so they were reasserting their commitment to that covenant. They were saying to the Lord, Lord, we are committed to this covenantal relationship and we have faith in you as a covenant keeping God to fulfill all your promises. And so they participated in that sign of the covenant. After that, they celebrated the Passover, which is a glorious celebration. It commemorates when they were brought out of Egypt, the house of slavery, when they were delivered from the hand of the oppressor by the hand of the Lord and set free. Passover celebrates and commemorates that. And so they rejoiced in that in chapter five. Now, at the end of chapter five, as we segue into chapter six, Joshua goes to check out Jericho. As you study the book of Joshua, you find out that uh, Joshua is really the, the greatest military commander perhaps in all of the Bible. In fact, modern military schools sometimes study or at least reference some of the maneuvers that Joshua designed. He was a, a, an incredible military tactician and strategist. And he realized that the first thing they had to do to take the land was to take Jericho. Jericho was in the low-lying places. Once they took that, they could move into the hill country and they would go straight across and cut the land in half, thereby dividing the enemy and they would be able to conquer. It was a brilliant military strategy. And what Joshua does just after the circumcision is he goes by himself to survey the city that they were gonna take and that is Jericho. His fighting forces have been immobilized because of the circumcision. So Joshua goes up by himself to check it out, you know, as a commander, to see what's going on, to, to get a feel for it. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 13. It says in Joshua 5, 13, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for the adversaries? And he said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the Lord of hosts. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Very clearly, and we discussed this in our previous study, this is the Lord. The Lord himself appears to Joshua, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ Jesus, a theophany, if you will. Joshua sees the Lord. And, and there's something very important about this encounter. What happens here is that he sees the Lord as a warrior. He sees the Lord here as a man of war. He appears as a soldier and he has his sword drawn. And notice that Joshua says to him, wow, gnarly warrior guy, whose side are you on? Maybe not knowing it's the Lord yet, maybe knowing he said, whose side are you on? Are you for us or the enemy? And the Lord says, no. And he says, you didn't answer my question. Are you for us or the enemy? No. Okay, let me rephrase it for you. Whose side are you on? Choice A, us. Choice B, the enemy. Your answer, no. In other words, Joshua was asking the wrong question. Listen, the question for humanity is not, Lord, are you on my side? The question for humanity is, am I on the Lord's side? Because when you ask the Lord to choose sides, he says, no. 
I am the captain of the hosts of the Lord. He is the ruling and reigning king. He is the commander. And the question is not, Lord, will you bless my gig? Lord, will you be at my gig? Will you get into what I'm doing and be on my side? That's a wrong question, humanity. We need to ask ourselves, am I involved in the Lord's gig? Am I, am I discerning what the Lord is doing and aligning myself with him? That is the goal of humanity in the Christian life. The next thing that Joshua discovered that's very important is that the Lord was a commander. You see, Joshua thought he was a commander. He was appointed the leader over Israel, and he was a great military tactician and strategist. He thought he was a commander. And the Lord says, I am the captain of the host of the Lord. I am the one who is over this thing. I am the king. I am the commander. I am the general. Now, that was a wonderful realization for Joshua to realize that the Lord would fight the battle. And, and doesn't the scripture say that the battle belongs to the Lord? We ought to rejoice in that because you're a naive Christian if you don't think you're engaged in a battle. You are engaged in a spiritual battle and our enemy's name is Satan. And we are engaged in a battle, but the Bible tells us the battle belongs to the Lord. And that the Lord is a warrior and he's the commander. And it says in Isaiah 42, 12 and 13, this is a theme verse for our church. It says, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. That's a wonderful reality. The Lord is a warrior and a victorious warrior. And notice what it says. He will prevail against his enemies. Sometimes we look at the world scene and if you look at it through secular eyes and apart from the eyes of faith, you wonder who's winning here. But it's the Lord. The Lord is the victor and he's the king and he will prevail against his enemies. There's absolutely no question about that. But the question for our individual lives is this. Have you encountered the Lord in the same way that Joshua did? You see, you may be a Christian, you may know the Lord. Joshua knew the Lord. But have you encountered him in the way that Joshua did? Joshua, this encounter solidified once and for all in Joshua's mind, I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge of my life. I'm not in charge of these people. The Lord is on the throne. He is the king and he is the commander. Have you recognized Jesus as Lord? Not just Savior, but as Lord. Is he on the throne of your life? Because so often what the Christian does is he relegates Jesus to a peripheral place in his life. He wants the Lord to be sure. He may even say, oh, I love the Lord. Jesus, I want you in my life. But Jesus, I want you over here in my life. All the while in the center on the throne is self and the pursuits of self and reputation and monetary gain and all these other things, none of which, you know, are necessarily inherently evil, but Jesus Christ has got to be on the throne. Is Jesus Lord in your life? And by the way, there's a cute little saying, but I think it makes a lot of sense. If he isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. We're happy to surrender a whole bunch, but we like to keep these little secret spots. And Lord, you can have all this, but this is mine. That's not letting Jesus be Lord. And the mantra of the early church was, Jesus is Lord. In a culture where people were supposed to say, Caesar is Lord. The cultural context was exalting this man. The church comes on the scene and starts to say, Jesus is the Lord. He is the king. That was in response to Jesus' statement that the kingdom had come upon them. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus came speaking about the kingdom, and then the early church began speaking about Jesus, the king. And so their mantra was, Jesus is Lord in a world that was contrary to that. Are you submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Many of us here, maybe hundreds of us here, have never really submitted to his lordship. I mean, we've never really surrendered and said, Lord, what do you want for my life? What do you want for this relationship? Lord, what do you want for this day? What do you want for my vocation? What do you want for my marriage? What do you want in my parenting? What do you want in my schooling? Lord, what is your will for my life? Joshua chapter six, verse one. 
It says, now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went in and no one came out. We see here that Jericho is terrified. They've seen what the Lord did for Israel. They've seen the forces of Israel enter into the land. They shut down the city. They are in terror. Now that's a parenthetical statement. And we pick up Joshua's conversation with the Lord now in verse two. And the Lord is going to give Joshua some direction here. Verse two of Joshua six. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its valiant warriors. I want you to notice about that statement, very important. The Lord says, I have given Jericho into your hand. Do you notice that it's in past tense? He says, look, I have already accomplished this thing. I already have the victory for you. Look, I have given Jericho and its king and its inhabitants into your hand. It is in the past tense. The victory is sure, it's already done in the mind of the Lord and by the power of the Lord. Second thing I want you to notice is this. He said, look, I have given you Jericho. I have given it to you. When it comes to the promises of God, we need to realize that the person behind the promise is the power. Do you know what I'm saying? The person behind the promise is the power. If somebody comes and makes a promise to you, that promise is only as good as their character. The promises of God are only as good as the character of Jesus Christ. And that's real good. Amen. The power, the, 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 the person behind the promise is the power. God said, I have given you Jericho. And there's a parallel thought for us in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter one, where it says in verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, past tense, blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice that once again, just as the Lord gave Jericho into the hands of Joshua, that same God has given us every spiritual blessing for our Christian life. It is past tense. It is already accomplished because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the person of Jesus is the power behind that promise. The New Testament says in 2 Corinthians 1, for all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. And it is already done in Jesus Christ. The goal of the Christian life then is to just lay hold of those things. And so for Joshua, the victory was sure. The Lord said, I have given it into your hands. And what that meant for him now was something very important. It meant that as he and his brothers went into battle, they would realize that they were fighting from a place of victory. The victory is already done. The Lord said, I have already done it. I have already given it to you. So they were fighting from a place of victory, not a place of ambiguity. I don't know what the outcome is gonna be. Not a place of intimidation. Oh, this is hard, but I hope we get there. No, they were coming from a place of sure victory. And that would allow them to fight valiantly because they knew they couldn't lose. They were fighting from a place of victory. The enemy was already defeated. All they had to do was carry out their orders. Now that is a perfect parallel to the Christian life. <laughs> Satan, our foe, has already been defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians says that he has been disarmed. He is a defeated foe. The Lord made a public spectacle of him through the cross of Jesus Christ. We then can fight valiantly against the enemy. We can stand firm and resist the enemy and he must flee from us, James 4, 7 says, because the victory is sure because of the person of Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to be intimidated by the enemy. We don't need to be caught up in ambiguity and uncertainty because of the enemy. We can stand firm in the promises and person of Jesus Christ and see the victory of the Lord on our behalf. Amen? Now, the Lord is going to give Joshua some instructions. As I said, the victory is sure. All they had to do now was obediently carry out the instructions of the Lord. Let's begin reading those instructions in verse 3. The Lord says, here's what you're to do. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. 
Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall be that when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat, and the people will go up, every man straight ahead. Verse 6. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, verse 10, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you shout. Then you shall shout. Now, these instructions that the Lord gives Joshua are very strange. And I imagine that this great military tactician, this strategist thought, oh wow, this is where the brilliant strategy ends. I mean, th this just didn't make any sense. It wouldn't have made any sense to Joshua. It doesn't make any sense to me. What the Lord told him to do was strange and counterintuitive and non-militaristic. And this was a military campaign. The Lord said that they were to march around the city once a day for six days. They weren't to come against the city. They weren't to raise their weapons. They weren't to raise their voices. They were to simply, in silence, march around the city for six consecutive days. And then once they went around, they would simply return back to Gilgal, their camp, a couple miles away. Now, Jericho was a small city. Archaeological discoveries tell us that it was just a few acres in breadth. And so it wouldn't have taken them much time at all to march around the city. Surely all the warriors of that city would have been on the walls, watching, anticipating, waiting, perhaps mocking, but not a move. Just march around the city and go back to camp. And then there were to be seven priests who had seven trumpets or shofars, ram's horns, and they were to be blowing these uh, periodically. And then we read that on the seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times. Once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, they would march around seven times. Now, at the end of the seventh lap around the city, the priests would blow the shofars, and then the people were to shout, and then the walls would come down, and the people would go in. I mean, I, I mean Joshua was like you and I. When he heard this, he had to be going, okay, Lord, wait a minute, wait a minute, Lord. I've got these men, you know, they're all healed up from the circumcision and they've been in the wilderness 40 years. I mean, they're ready to do some stuff, you know, and, and they're warriors and they're ready. And there's a lot of us and Lord, I think we could take it. And, you know, you've brought us this far and, you know, maybe we do the war and you do the God stuff and maybe God says, no, this is my plan. March around the city and be quiet until I tell you. They would walk around that city in that week a total of 13 times. Now, when they were marching, they were to be organized in a peculiar manner. The Lord laid it out them in those verses that we read. In the beginning of the procession was to be the armed men. They would be at the beginning of that procession. After them were to be the priests with the trumpets. Just after the priests came the ark of God. And then after the ark of God came the rear guard more soldiers and more people. So it was first the soldiers and then the priests and then the ark of God and then more people at the rear. That was a God-ordained structure for taking the city. I want you to notice that the ark was ordained by God to be in the middle of the people. Remember, please, what the ark was and represented to Israel. It represented and manifested the power, presence, and person of God in the life of Israel. The ark of God represented and manifested the power, presence, and person of God in the life of Israel. And God ordained that he was to be in the middle of the nation on this military campaign. He was to be in their midst. That was the God-ordained order that he was in the center, pictured in the ark. Now, God's ordained order for you and I 
the church is exactly the same. Jesus Christ is to be in the center. There is an ecclesiastical structure. Jesus Christ is to be in the center of the church. When we gather corporately, he is to be the centerpiece. He is to be the focal point. He is to be the one to whom we give our attention and our adoration. He is to be the one on whom we pin our hopes and our joys and our dreams and our future on the person of Jesus Christ. He is to be in the center of the church. That is a God-ordained order and structure. And if Israel were to veer from that order and adjust it some way according to their own insight, that would be folly for them. And when the church loses that order, that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece, it is folly for the church. And Christians are in error when they begin to pin their hopes on a church or a movement or a person or a man. Those things are reserved for Jesus Christ alone. And it is so easy for us to make it about everything other than Jesus Christ. But when we gather as the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, the gathering, Jesus Christ is to be the centerpiece. Corporately, in our corporate mind and heart, and individually in our hearts and minds, Jesus Christ enthroned. That is a God-ordained structure. And when we veer from that structure, corporately or individually, it spells trouble for us. So I ask you, is Jesus the center? When you come to church, are your hopes and expectations pinned on the person of Jesus Christ? If not, you're in error. If you've come for music, you're in error. If you've come to hear a man preach, you are in error. You've come for the fellowship, you're in error. For the food, for the coffee, you're in error. Those things are peripheral and must always be so. The heart is Jesus Christ, the center, the glory, the master, the king, the Lord is Jesus Christ. Is he those things in your life? He must be. He refuses to be relegated to a peripheral position. He is Lord and king. Amen? And so we need to order and structure our lives so that Jesus is the center. They had to be purposeful. Bring the ark. Come here. Put the ark right here. Okay, you, you're up there. You, you're back here. You, you're over here. Bam. You need to be purposeful to structure your life so that the Lord is in the center. That takes a little thought. It takes a little time of your heart committed to the Lord. Now, what is interesting about this also is that they were to remain silent the whole time. It doesn't say that they got to go back to camp and talk. Okay, we can march around the city. It'll take a few minutes and we go back to camp and we'll chat it up. It doesn't say that. Joshua said, you are to remain silent until I tell you otherwise. Verse 10, it says, not a single word shall proceed out of your mouth. And so what we have here is a week of absolute silence commanded by the Lord. Why do you think that was? Why do you think as they went to take this city, this first military campaign now in the promised land, why do you think it is that God had them be silent? I'll confess to you, I'm, I'm actually not sure, but I have a few ideas. Perhaps the Lord is wanting to teach them something that he's always wanting to teach his people, and that's this. Be still and know that I am God. For us to be still, it usually means we have to stop talking. For some of us, it really means that. Be still and know that I am God. You see, there's a challenge for the Christian, and that's to learn to rely on Christ alone. We're so people-focused. And when times of uncertainty and overwhelming circumstances come our way, we're so quick to run to people, aren't we? We're so quick to run to a leader or run to a friend or run to a counselor or a mentor or someone else and gather all this counsel around us. And what we often skip is the primary relationship. We often miss that step of stopping and saying, okay, Lord, what do you want to say about this situation? We're quick to cry, we're quick to complain, we're quick to talk about it, but we're so slow to stop and say, okay, Lord, speak. I think the Lord was wanting them to be quiet. I think the Lord was wanting them to learn to discern his voice. And I think there needs to be in the life of every Christian some time that we set aside to be quiet before the Lord, to listen to his voice. Yes, it's wonderful to pray, but prayer is a conversation. Have you ever been in a one-sided conversation? It's a nightmare. You know what I'm talking about where the person says, blah, 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 and you can't get a word inside. I, I, yeah. 
get away from me. So many times we're like that with the Lord. Just one-sided, just non-stop, just chattering, complaining, asking, da, 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 da. And I think there comes a time where the Christian needs to stop and be quiet and wait and listen for the Lord and learn to rely on Him and not so much on others. Others play a role in our lives, but they can't play the primary role. They can't be the first one that we go to. And there's such a tendency for us to do that. We need to learn to rely upon the Lord. And I think there's something else the Lord was doing. And my friend Dave suggested this to me. He, he said, Britt, here's why I think they had to be quiet. Because for 40 years in the, in the wilderness, they just complained and groaned and moaned for 40 years. Anybody have kids? Have you ever heard your kid just complain forever? My little Daisy love. She'll be three in June. She's the sweetest little thing in the whole world, but you know, she's two. And sometimes she gets in these whiny, complaining modes. No matter what it is, I want a million Just that whining tone and tenor all day long, no matter what she says. Just whining, whining, whining. Makes you nuts. Can you imagine the Lord as Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and just whined and complained no matter what the Lord did, no matter how he tried to teach him, whining and complaining, whining and complaining, whining and complaining. I think now that the Lord has brought him into the promised land, one of the first lessons he wants to teach them is calmete y callete. <laughs> That's Spanish for calm down and shut up. Calmete y callete, mijo. Just be quiet for a little while. You guys have been wandering and complaining for so long. Calmate. Quiet down. Don't say anything. Let me be God. You be submitted. I think that's part of what the Lord was doing here. It's also profitable for us to wonder why the Lord had them walk around the wall 13 times. I mean, 13 times. Six consecutive days and then seven times on the seventh day, 13 times around the wall. As I was studying this, most commentators, in fact, every commentator says this that the Lord let them walk around those walls repeatedly, that they might survey the enormity of the obstacle in front of them and come to the place of realizing that they could not take that city without the Lord. But I think that's incorrect. I don't think that's right. Why? Because we know a few things historically, which I'll reveal to you in a moment. But the, the Lord just taught them that lesson. That was the Jordan experience, not the Jericho experience. Remember, the Lord brought them to the Jordan, to the east side, and let them camp out for three days. That's where the Lord taught them that. It was the enormity of the Jericho, the consequences of the father's sin, that strong flow that had them hemmed in and cut off from the promises of God. It was there where they camped for three days, surveyed it, and came to the realization, we're never getting across this thing unless the Lord does it. That was the Jordan lesson. This is a Jericho lesson, a different lesson altogether. Here's the idea. that Here's some of the, the facts that we know. The inhabitants of, Jer of Jericho, excuse me, were probably only about 3,000. We know from archaeological discoveries, and we'll go right past Jericho when we go to Israel this September, uh, political climate allowing, we'll go right to that region and perhaps even into uh, the modern city of Jericho itself. And I've seen these ruins. It, it's not that big. Probably held about 3,000 people, Jericho did. Now listen, Numbers chapter 26, verse 51 tells us that the men of Israel, the fighting force of Israel at this moment, numbered over 600,000. Over 600,000. Jericho? What Jericho? Jericho's just got 3,000 people in it. So it's got some big walls. In fact, they were double walls. We'll talk about it in the coming weeks. It was fortified for sure. It was a fortress, no doubt about it. But listen, 600,000 men, they could have all stood around the walls and every one of them grabbed a brick and said, are you ready? Are you ready? On the count of three, pull the brick. One, two, three, pull. And the walls would have came down. They had more than enough resources and manpower to accomplish this in and of themselves. I mean, that's an enormous fighting force, 600,000 men. I did some research, and according to modern military might, they would have been the eighth greatest fighting force, at least largest fighting force in the modern world right now. All the people, men, women, and children camped out at Gilgal is enough people to have been the fourth largest city in America right now. New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Gilgal. That's how many of them there were. 
I am telling you, historically, factually speaking, Jericho was no real obstacle. It was no problem. These walls and these people were easily surmountable by the force that they had. Jericho could have been destroyed by them very easily in and of their own resources. So then why did they walk around the walls 13 times if it wasn't to see the enormity of the problem as they did at Jordan say we can't do it without the Lord? Well, here's why. I think God was teaching them a very important lesson that the Lord wants to teach you and I. That in his economy, in his kingdom, great victories come not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And there's no question that Israel at this moment had power and had might. But the Lord said to Zerubbabel and Zechariah 4, 6, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And what he's wanting to teach them is to not rely on their own resources, even though they are readily available and sufficient for the task at hand. Now, that's a big lesson for you and I, American Christians, who are by every standard of the world affluent and wealthy. We have a lot of resources to accomplish a lot of things. And there's a lot of times where we do just what you know much of Israel wanted to do, just charge ahead and get her done. But the Lord was saying, calmate y callate. Calm down, be quiet, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He was wanting to bring them to the point of the psalmist in Psalm 20, verse 7, where the psalmist says this, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. You see, there's a problem with the church in America, Christians in America. We've got a lot of horses to boast about. We've got a lot of chariots to boast about. What we find ourselves often doing is boasting about and putting trust in those things other than the Lord. And yet when Jesus taught us to pray, Jesus said, pray this way. Give us this day our daily bread. He never qualified that statement by saying, until you become well-to-do and you have enough bread for the month, then you can just pray once in a while. Lord, give me enough bread for a month or two. That's not what he said. He was wanting to teach us in that prayer to rely upon him and his sustenance and his sovereignty and his kingship and lordship daily. That regardless of how much we have or don't have, the position of the heart, the corazón, the position of the heart needs to be, Lord, give me my daily bread. Lord, today I submit myself to your sovereignty. Lord, today I rely on you. Certainly, Lord, I've got enough to make it happen for myself but I just want to submit myself to you. It doesn't mean that we don't go out and buy bread for ourselves. It doesn't mean that we can't go to Costco and buy bread for six months. We can. It's a position of the heart, submitted to the Lord. This is, I don't boast in my resources or my toolbox. I boast in my Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. It's a position of the heart. Now, he would teach them this same lesson in another way in the next book, in Judges. You guys read it in your one-year Bible reading just you know a couple weeks ago. In Judges chapter 7, we have Gideon. And Gideon had a fighting force of 32,000 men. And they were coming up against the Midianites. The Midianites were going to attack them. And the Midianites had a fighting force of 135,000. So they were outnumbered, Israel, by the Midianites, four to one. Now, if, if you're hip with the Bible and you read it, you say, no problem, the Lord. I mean, four to one, what? The Lord doesn't sweat that. The Lord will give them the victory. Well, you know what? The Lord wanted more. The Lord didn't like those odds. And so the Lord told Gideon, Gideon, go to your fighting force of 32,000 men and say, hey, if any of you want to go home and not be a part of this battle, go ahead. And we're told in the scriptures that 22,000 men left that day. And so there were 10,000 men left. Now the Midianites had a 13 to 1 advantage over Israel. You say, okay, well, yeah, wow. Okay, the Lord can do it. The Lord said, no, I want more. And so the Lord pared down Gideon's fighting force to three hundred men. They were now outnumbered 450 to one. And the Lord says, perfect. <laughs> it's the same lesson. It's the same lesson. Our trust, our hope, our confidence is to be pinned on the person of Jesus Christ, whether we are in plenty or we are in lack. He is to be the center he is to be enthroned. Our hopes are pinned on him. And as I just said, this is a huge lesson for those of us who are affluent. Because it's very easy for us to begin to rely on our own resources. And when we're backed into a corner, 
and things are perhaps ambiguous or overwhelming, we start to reach for the world's tools. So quickly, just, hey, I, I can handle this. I got the resources. No problem. I can do this. Boom, boom. The only problem with that is you miss what the Lord might want to do. The Lord has given you those things. Don't be ashamed of those things. There's no problem with having those resources. But are they submitted to the Lord? That's all. Are they submitted to the Lord? And if you go right to the tool chest of the world and the tool chest of what you have, you just miss what the Lord might want to do in your life. You see, he wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your king. He wants to be your deliverer. He wants to be your savior. He wants to be your provider. He wants to be your redeemer. He wants to be everything for you. And the responsibility of the subjects of the kingdom is to allow the king to rule and reign. That means we need to submit our resources and our tool chest and our affluency to him. And we need to be reminded of this. Our enemies are spiritual, namely Satan. And so our weapons are spiritual. And so if we only reach for the material resources and just forge ahead and get her done, we're oftentimes not actually getting her done because our weapons are not to be material. It says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. You see, in the Christian life, we're going to face fortresses just like Joshua and his men. We are going to face strongholds, and we are going to have to face the enemy. And in that moment, we've got to realize that we have spiritual resources. We have the armor of God spoken of in Ephesians chapter 6. We have the helmet of salvation. Make sure it's on. We've got the breastplate of righteousness. Make sure it's in place. We've got to be girded up with the belt of truth. We've got to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We've got to have the shield of faith. And we've got the sword of the spirit. And then we've got prayer. Prayer, just spiritual atomic bombs. Just bam, prayer against the enemy, tearing down strongholds. This passage speaking of prayer, when it says divinely powerful, literally in the Greek, it means it has power with God. Our prayers are powerful in the heart and mind of God and against the schemes of the enemy who came to kill and steal and destroy. So we need to be very sure that we're a spiritual people because we have a spiritual enemy. And we serve a God who is spirit and is to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And this victory for them, though the victory was sure because it was accomplished by the Lord, it would only be experienced by faith. By faith is the only way the walls would come down. The report is from Hebrews 11.30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Only by faith. And the Christian life is to be lived by faith. Faith meaning believing who God is and what he has said he will do. Three times the New Testament says in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, my, watch, my righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight. Our tendency is to always walk by sight. We're so caught up in the temporal, the here and now, what we can see, what's tactile, what's tangible, what we can touch and feel. And so we often miss the faith aspect. But Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And this victory was only laid hold of by faith. It was past tense. It was sure. It was done. But it would only be actualized by faith. And so is a Christian life. We already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in the person of Christ Jesus, but they're laid hold of by faith, the life of faith, trusting in and acting according to who God is and what God has said. And so I ask you, what are the Jerichos in your life? How about the Jordans in your life? There may be things that just seem insurmountable. It's going to take faith and trusting in the Lord and obeying him. There may be things that are easily surmountable. You just go, I can handle this, but wait a minute. Have you submitted it in yourself to the sovereignty of the Lord? Have you asked the Lord, what should I do? There's a novel thought. Hey, Lord, what should I do? I've got this situation. It's no big deal, really, Lord. I could handle it. I mean, I could pull out a check right now, or I could call this guy, or I could grab this and that and the other. I can handle it, but you're my Lord. Hey, Lord, what should I do? Boy, I think you'd be surprised how often the Lord has an opinion on what you ought to do with your life. I think you marvel at how often the Lord has an opinion. And the Lord gave Joshua and the boys some very clear marching orders. 
And all that they had to do, this is all they had to do, it was so simple, all they had to do was obey. And they would experience the fullness of what God has for them. Just be obedient in it. Christians, don't you want to honor Jesus Christ? I mean, that's our heart, right? That's our individual heart. We're, we're just on fire for the Lord. We just love the Lord. We want to honor and bless and glorify his name. According to scripture, what most honors God and what God is most honored by is obedience, period, period. What most honors God and what God most honors is obedience. You guys read just a couple days ago in 1 Samuel 15 about Saul who won against the Amorites and had a victory. And the Lord had told Saul, Saul, you destroy everything. Don't take any of it. And Saul saw the choicest of the lambs and the goats. And he said, well, I heard what the Lord said, but this makes sense to me. News for you. The Lord's commands are not always going to make sense to you. Why? He's an infinite, all-wise God. We're finite and not really that bright. He has already told us his ways are higher than our ways. His ways are not always going to make sense to us. There's all sorts of shortcuts. By the everything that we can see, it makes perfect sense to do this, except for the Lord has said, I probably shouldn't do that. Why not trust the Lord? Why not believe the Lord and obey the Lord and see the goodness and the power and the blessings of the victory of the Lord? We sell ourselves in the kingdom of God short when we take it into our own hands and say, well, I think I know a better way. That's what uh, Abraham did. God promised him a son, Isaac. Notice, the Lord didn't tell him when, he just said he would. Welcome to the kingdom of God. He didn't tell him when, he just said he would. I will give you a son. When, Lord? <laughs> Abraham, after 11 years, got tired of waiting. Abraham looked at his maidservant, Hagar, and said, you know what? I know what the Lord said and what the Lord wants to do, but I have the resources and the ability to make it happen right now. Why not? Help the Lord, can't be bad, no big deal. Birthed an Ishmael. Ishmael was a bummer for Abraham, bummer for Isaac, bummer for his descendants for millennium. Ishmael's are the things that we don't want in our life. They make a mess of our life and they don't simply go away. They are the products of compromise. They are products of taking things into our own hands and not trusting the Lord. They are the products of walking by sight and not by faith. They are the products of acting according to our own wisdom and saying, well, here's what I see. I know what the Lord says, but here's what I see. Abraham made that mistake and he would never forget it. The Lord is good and gracious and redeems all things, but there are consequences. All they had to do was obey. All that Saul had to do was obey. That's what most honors the Lord. He said, well, I mostly obeyed. I killed almost everything. You only mostly obey. Listen, 90% obedience is not obedience in God's economy. What did Samuel say to Saul? He said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Look, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And there's a sloppy Christianity so often in popular Christian America. We love to worship the Lord and we want to come in and hooray and hurrah and lift our hands and offer the sacrifice of praise, but we're unwilling to offer the sacrifice of obedience on Monday. We want to come in on Sunday and glory to the Lord, but on Monday we want to be the captain of our own destiny. That is not consistent. That is not right. The Lord says to obey is better than to sacrifice. Well, I wrote my check. Well, I did my thing. I came and I cleaned the church. I invited that person to home group or whatever it was. To obey is better than to sacrifice. Jesus made it so wonderfully simple for you and I. We need it simple. He made it simple. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Obedience then becomes the litmus test for adoration and faith. How much we love the Lord is revealed in our obedience. I'm so sorry about that. I can't soft pedal that for you. There's no way around that. How much we love the Lord is revealed in our obedience. That is the test of God. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. How much we believe the Lord is revealed by our obedience. Here's a spiritual law. Disobedience reveals our unbelief. Obedience reveals our faith. So our adoration and our faith in the Lord is revealed by how we obey or don't obey the Lord. The Lord doesn't set it up that way because he's a taskmaster or because it's a performance-based relationship. He is not and it is not. 
The Lord sets it up that way because he is a wise, caring, loving father. And he knows what is best for his children. And he knows what will make for the most profitable, meaningful love relationship between you and him. He knows how to get you in the place of blessing. He knows how to bring you through the Jordans and across the Jerichos. He knows how to do it. And we experience those things when we obey him. And so I want to stop right here. And what I want us to avoid doing as we get ready to just reflect and be before the Lord and worship, I want us to avoid playing church. That's where you come in, you hear the message, oh, yes, amen, I agree, and you do nothing about it. Don't do that. Billy Graham once said the biggest sin in America is listening to sermons. Don't do that today. If the Lord is speaking to you, respond to the Lord. Perhaps you've, you've relegated him to some peripheral position in your life. You, you didn't even necessarily mean to. You don't even like it. You don't agree with it. But there he is on the periphery when he ought to be in the center. Do something about that today. Whatever you've enthroned, kick it off the throne today. and Put Jesus on the throne of your life. Organize your life such that Jesus is the center. Maybe you've just been grumbling and complaining and just backbiting for so long. And you know that you haven't been quiet before the Lord about it ever. You've complained to everybody else. You've told your story. You've moaned and groaned and lamented. You've sought counsel. You've gathered people around you, but you haven't waited on the Lord. Wait on the Lord today. The Lord knows your troubles. Listen to the Lord. He may have something to say about it. Maybe you feel like, I've been walking around these walls for a long time, and I'm not seeing anything happen. Christian, persevere today. God is absolutely faithful. The end is not yet. Persevere. Their obedience had to be till the end. Don't get partway through and then birth an Ishmael. Don't do that. Be faithful to the end because he's faithful. Persevere in it. Maintain those marching orders. Amen? Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come and minister to us now individually and corporately. You know what we have need of. You know where we're on the right track. You know where we're going awry. And so Holy Spirit, come and deal with our hearts. Thank you that you deal with us in love. Thank you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you're a loving, nurturing, wonderful Father. Father, come. We're your children. We want to be submitted to you. King Jesus, be enthroned in our midst. You know what's happening in our lives. Come, Lord, help us. If you need help today, the prayer team is up here. I suggest before you go to the prayer team, you go to the Lord. And the carpets are up here. It's a wonderful thing to come and get on your face before the King. Let's do some real business now. The Lord wants to change lives today. The Lord wants to set some people free and he wants to heal some stuff today. The Lord wants to speak to you today. Many of you, I believe the Lord's going to speak to you prophetically, profoundly today for your life. If you'll but quiet every other voice and hear his.